welcome to Got the Runs, the cursed episode. <laughs> Uh, did El Mortez appear to you in a dream last night as well? <laughs> oh, sorry, El Morte. His, his yes. last name, of course, is Mortez. A very yes. subtle distinction. Uh, what's, how much, just out of curiosity, how much supernatural stuff is normally depicted in the spirit? Greater than zero. <laughs> but not like... I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's usually a staple of spirit stories that, a, like, a witch casts a spell. Right. <laughs> but also, like, one of the most, like, recognizable attributes of spirit stories is that, like, no two spirit stories are exactly the same and pretty much anything can happen. <laughs> so, sure. yeah, like I said, greater than zero, but it's not, like, a recurring theme or anything like that. Yeah, that, that would probably be more in keeping with what I would expect out of a spirit story in my limited knowledge. Um, you're, of course, listening to the cursed episode. We are both currently suffering <laughs> from the novel coronavirus. Uh, <coughs> oh, Punctuation you, cough. Yeah, leave that in. <laughs> and w- I say that for the second time because <laughs> immediately after I said it the first time, your power cut out. That's correct. And so... Basically, this is just going to be a bad episode. Just download it, listen to it on mute to make sure that the play count is registered, and but we don't listen to you. it. You will, <laughs> you will be sealed in an immortal tomb, perhaps. No, like me, this episode is going to rally and actually be good. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so in the sense that I hope you will one day rally and be good. Uh, but you're listening to Got the Runs. We are covering the works of the great Darwin Cook. We are on to his interpretation of Will Eisner's The Spirit as depicted in the 2007 DC Comics run of the character. That's correct. Simply titled The Spirit. Mm-hmm. Although, although always styled as Will Eisner's The Spirit. Yes, that is a thing that I think that continues throughout like pretty much every depiction of him right is that he is styled as will eisner's the spirit generally yes. this uh, this is like diving into the whole like background of like well like, the eisner estate a bit faster than i intended to <laughs> i i will say i texted you before we did this episode and was like a i think this will probably be on on the shorter side episode and b I imagine most of it will involve just us <laughs> talking about what the spirit is and like what his whole deal is because well, and I, I, mean, I I was amused to receive that text because in truth like I have not read that many like Will sure. Eisner spirit stories and like I don't consider myself super familiar with the character until uh, until recently but I guess compared to like the average lay person, I'm a spirit expert. <laughs> yeah, you know some things about the spirit. I do know a couple I mean, things about the spirit. And I will say, like, I think these are mostly fine comics. Mm-hmm. I don't have a ton to say about his, like, particular spin on the spirit. Yeah. Maybe you do. Not, not like, in so far as, like, I have deep thoughts on any, like, recurrent themes or, like, you know, anything like that. Okay, well, ac- <laughs> now we're getting all over the place. <laughs> I will get into my thoughts on these specific comics in a bit, but 
as far as like the consistent styling of it as Will Eisner's The Spirit, Will, like the the Eisner kind of like art estate is under the kind of like stewardship slash art agency of Dennis Kitchen, who is like the founder of Kitchen Sink Press, which you may recognize as like the original publisher of Understanding Comics. Sure. And sort of a general um, kind of... Uh, bastion of the like independent comics scene of the 80s 90s and whatever little bob fm reference there for you uh london heads or jack fm as some hear it (laughs) jack fm as some hear it but so they had originally wanted to do this with like eisner's kind of cooperation not necessarily his like participation beyond sort of like in an advisory and like approval giving capacity. But he had worked out, Eisner had worked out a deal with DC in the 80s to do a Batman spirit special, which is like how they kicked off this this current series. So that was like decades in the making. It just like kind of never really worked. He had come back to the spirit after kind of leaving him behind in the 50s because Dennis Kitchen wanted to like publish some new spirit stories and start collecting some of the old ones. He kind of like coaxed Eisner back into it and he did a few for Kitchen Sink and then was like subsequently given a better deal by uh, Warren Press. So there are like Warren Press reissues of like all the old spirit material, but he remained like a mentor and friend of Dennis Kitchen. So in his kind of later life, Kitchen became his art agent for like original art and things like that. And then now after his death, like Kitchen is like the steward of the spirit and like works out all of the like licensing deals and continues to be the art dealer for like any original spirit art. And Eisner like, who knew that he, you know, he was in his late days, basically like made arrangements for Kitchen to step into his place as kind of like the okayer of spirit things. So all of these issues like had to get run by Dennis Kitchen and like get his approval. Like that was part of the like production process basically. And I forget why we started talking about that in the first place. Because it stylizes Will Eisner's The Spirit. Right, right, right. Because so, uh, I know I know the big thing is like he owns the spirit, which is he, like he a does, very yeah. like particular and like rare thing. Yes, it is it is a fairly particular and rare thing. And I think that one of the reasons that you will always see it as Will Eisner's The Spirit is certainly because he took great care to kind of protect his own intellectual property while he was alive, but also because he made very careful arrangements to ensure that it would continue to be protected and stewarded well after his death. And so Kitchen definitely is kind of like an active, hands-on, yeah, steward of the of the property. And the license has continued to move around, but is always credited as Will Eisner's The Spirit. Sure, absolutely. Uh, sorry, I was just reading that he had his last work as a graphic oh, novel. Oh, uh, sorry, who, the Will Eisners or, uh, yeah, or the Will Spirits? Eisners. Sorry, oh, go, I, I thought you were discovering what the last Will Eisner produced spirit story was, <laughs> but but it sounds like you were looking at something different. I was, of course, looking at the Will Eisner graphic novel, The Plot, the secret story of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Oh boy. Which is yeah. which is a story about an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory yes. and not itself an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Yes, we are of, of course all intimately familiar with the protocols of the elders of Zion. We we won't ever will we ever do Will Eisner? I can't imagine so because if you like it, just his so, books. There's, 
just his graphic novels would be interesting. There's like 15 of them to or do 20. To do otherwise becomes so complicated wow, because sure. he's so prolific and he like, you know, he's a true like golden age creator. So some of it is has just like never been republished um, right. and and it's like impossible to find. But just his graphic novels would be interesting, but even that in and of itself would be a pretty big undertaking. But tell me about the uh, the spirit story. Oh, the last spirit story is, of course, a crossover between the spirit and the escapist. And uh, you're familiar with the escapist? From Cavalier and Clay? That's correct, yes. Uh, the fictional Golden Age character who was created by the main characters of uh, Michael Chabon's Pulitzer Prize, excuse me, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which subsequently was spun off into a real comic book in which a very they, acclaimed comic, right? It's like they've done a few different things with it, and I'm not sure which ones are good and which ones are bad. So, like Vaughn wrote, uh, Brian K. Vaughn, that is, wrote a mini series that was about like young comics creators basically like rebooting the franchise and then also like becoming vigilantes in real life. That's crazy. But then they also had these stories that were like, and now of course here are the like in universe like escapist comics as right. like written by Joe Cavalier and drawn by Sam Clay or maybe it's vice versa but so so they have a bunch of those as well and that is what like Will Eisner's last spirit story is like a crossover where it's like and of course in the 50s I worked with Joe Cavalier and Sammy Clay to like produce our escapist spirit crossover issue <laughs> Sammy Clavis Jr. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, we, so, the spirit, mm -hmm. what, he, I, he is more recent than I expected, weirdly. He's oh, really? 1940, because I think my association. I guess you think of him as kind of like a shadow type. Yes, uh, exactly, yeah. because that's what it seems well, like to me, that he is sort of like evocative a pulp of. hero. Yeah. Who like probably originated on the radio. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, well, like, we hadn't come up with Superman yet, or, like, we hadn't invented superheroes yet, so this is what we have. He's sort of the founding father of, like, the, like, Rorschach branch of the superhero family tree, which is to say that he, like, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say he originates this, because it is very kind of evolutionary of the pulp hero, but the guy whose thing is, like, he wears a suit, <laughs> and, like, a literal, like, two-piece business suit, and right. that's He's it. like and, a like, sir. Yeah, like, not. it's not even that he's, like, like a sir. In fact, I would say most of the time those guys, because they are largely originating in the, like, 30s to 60s or, or like, maybe pushing it to 70s, the fact that they're wearing a suit is indicative of how, like, working class they are. Like, right. I would say this, the fact that the spirit is always wearing a suit is, like, you know, he's just another like hardworking Joe like you and me putting it's on like an suit every costume. day. Yeah, but but who like so like the question, Mister A. Um, I'm sure there's other prominent examples that I'm thinking of, but guys who basically their thing is like they wear a suit and a mask of some kind and have no superpowers and just fight crime while wearing a suit, which seems like it would really suck. <laughs> right. Well, like the thing about the spirit, at least in these comics, spirit is just like they. There's no real, like, there's no secret identity to him. No, the the conceit of it, like, his superpower, basically, in so much as he has one, is he is widely believed to be dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, like, it's like, there are the people who know he is alive, and as a result, like, like, there's, 
I what I would assume is like, oh, he was like engaged to what's her name? Ellen. Ellen. Yeah. Like, oh, he was engaged to Ellen, but then he died. And now she's like married to another man and he has to like watch from afar. But it's like, no, he just like goes and hangs out with Ellen. <laughs> um, like that would honestly be better because instead what we have is he's in a loving and committed relationship with Ellen, except for any other time he meets a woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, come on. What? How? Okay. Here's another. <laughs> I have uh-huh. lots of questions about the spirit. Sure. Bring it on. How do you pronounce that name? Which one? Pigel? <laughs> yeah pigel <laughs> i think i think i would have instinctively gone to pigel but yeah, i read fancy. that i read that it is supposed to be a play on pigal which is a like district of france that is known for its like sex shops basically hmm. well i hope you don't take a big l on that one hmm, same <laughs> yeah i mean she's cool <laughs> <laughs> sure she's pretty good i i do think that positioning her as like a poison ivy type in the batman spirit special is like a good good conceit good take on her yeah so basically he is like in the mold of a noir hero more or less yeah but he does like like, a lot of detecting yeah he he so like his origin story is that he was a detective or like a criminologist of some kind right before his presumed death and so detecting is still in theory kind of his main thing that he does um and of course like being a two-fisted type of you know 30s (laughs) originating detective who maybe spends less time like doing crime scene forensics and more time like punching people until they tell him where to go next right but yeah, I, I think, like, noir is a big part of him, but, like, pulp really, I would say, is more so where I would root him, and noir is certainly, like, a part of that, but also the, like, well, I don't, maybe this is still, maybe this is still noir but I feel like the, like, all of the femme fatales acknowledging that they, <laughs> that, like, term originates in noir, and all of the sort of, like, flirtiness of it, and all of the, like, it's really, I guess, more so the supervillains, like, the fact that there's like an animal trainer who's in love with a vulture is one of his (laughs) villains and um Mm -hmm. like i i guess like pigel would be more so on the kind of noir end of the spectrum whereas i feel like mr octopus is firmly or sorry the octopus is firmly on the like more pulpy end of the spectrum insofar as like his thing is like you never see his face because he's a master of disguise and like yeah and he's always like a global buying, crime like, syndicate yeah and i i would say like even beyond that it's always i mean you really get this from these issues but it's always cut with this sort of like tongue-in-cheek like the spirit never takes himself like too seriously or at least like the book doesn't allow him to take himself too seriously he's he's frequently kind of like the butt of the joke whatever the joke may be he is sort of like sisyphean almost in some of his his struggles sure like he can never really get too far ahead not that he's like a spider-man-ish sort of like permanently down on his luck type as so much as like it really is like uh i read him described as like the middle class hero and i guess that like really does kind of sum it up where it's like he he never gets like as low i guess as spider-man sometimes gets but he never really gets any higher than he is either like he's not yeah he's not like making his way anywhere he's just kind of like facing the day and then getting on with it yeah it's almost like in a way it's like a more effective acknowledgement of like the reality of the situation 
than like say Batman would be because it's like the spirit is not trying to like eradicate crime in Central City. He's no. just like he is basically just like a special cop. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Especially when you consider that he's like basically sanctioned by the Central City Police Force and like the commissioner is his father-in-law and knows his secret identity. Yeah, and that's why it's weird to me that it's like, oh, like this is this is post Batman. So like this it is like a take on Batman to some extent, right? Like yeah, the way kind I of. Guess, I guess the whole idea of like Commissioner Gordon was like not as much of a thing at that time. Like I feel like you saw you see more of like I've read some old Batman comics and I feel like it's usually like he drops in and they're like, Hey Batman, what do you make of this? Yeah, I would say the like the big sort of turning point in the kind of like Batman and Gotham police kind of relationship is probably year one, um, that positions it more so as like, you know, this this thing where it's like Gordon and Tug Batman trust each other, but it's complicated by various other kind of like external considerations and all of that. And then of course, like Gotham Central kind of takes that to the extreme where it's like getting so into the kind of nitty gritty where it's like, and of course, Commissioner Gordon can never touch the bat signal because of the legal implications. And so like <laughs> non-commissioned public employee Stacy is the person who is responsible for actually turning the bat signal on and off <laughs> so as to crazy. like give the GCPD plausible deniability. Like no officer is allowed to touch the bat signal. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. And, you know, I think, definitely he obviously has this certain element of timelessness or at least of like sort of existing in a world that is sort of like perpetually a certain way which is why yes. like and then it, and then you're like oh well like it makes perfect sense that a that darwin cook is into this guy mm-hmm. but and then b like that he would do that but then it's like issue one page one Cable news satire. Oh, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, page issue one, page one, cable news satire, but also, like, issue whatever it is at, like, six or seven. Like, entire issue, like, satire of, like, the talk show scene as it exists today and, like, talking head punditry. Here, Here is what, so apparently there exists, and I searched fairly extensively for it and could not find it, but... In this interview that Cook did with the Comics Journal um, with uh, Marcus Anneso that we have like alluded to several times, they also published excerpts from Darwin Cook's spirit memo to DC that he prepared as kind of like part of the development process for this book. And I have tried to find the full memo. It doesn't seem to have been reproduced anywhere, so I, I'm not sure where they even got what does exist here but it's in the same vein as like like when morrison started uh the new x-men run they published not published but they produced this document for marvel that was called the morrison manifesto that was basically laying out like here's what the movies did right and i'm going to also do here's what is like good about claremont here is what is bad about claremont and i'm going to jettison immediately like basically just laid out like kind of the mission statement Mm -hmm. but so cook in sharing some general thoughts regarding the monthly for year one, writes, At first glance, it may seem the spirit should ideally take place in the neverwhere of 40s post-war Central City and could make for a brilliant monthly. Personally, I think that the real opportunities lie in placing the strip in the modern world. Stripping the spirit out of Eisner's seductive execution of the 40s era, at its heart we find a strip about people and life in the city. Story and character are king. 
They are timeless stories that resonate regardless of the era. Any concerns regarding technology or why a man is wearing a fedora in 2004 can easily be addressed in a follow-up document. Again, I don't see any problems here, just opportunities. So, and I did read a few interviews where he shared kind of similar thoughts where it's like, I don't want it to feel like, and interesting also that like he wrote this obviously in 2004 and it doesn't come out until 2007. Um, so we can maybe talk about that a bit later. But anyways, he talks at several points about how what he appreciates about the spirit is that on the one hand, they do have this timeless feel and yet like he he alludes like very specifically to like a, a, a one spirit story where like this movie came out and then Eisner did a parody of it like the next week and basically being like it like it feels timeless because he's like inventing modern <laughs> like comic storytelling techniques before our very eyes. But it is also very much like of its own moment uh, where he's like, you know, he's commenting on like life as it is in in that like very moment and uh, and the world that is around him. And so basically like Cook wanted to do the same thing where he's not going to pretend that it's like the 40s. He's not going to pretend that like cell phones don't exist or anything like that. But he is going to try and keep it sort of like classic and timeless feeling but also not be afraid to do something like a like talking heads satire issue where he like specifically references you know basically like the news culture of the the like pre-obama era or i guess early obama era even yeah i mean <laughs> i mean that issue i don't like that issue but <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would say yeah i guess the problem is more just like i find it but it's like that i think there's a difference between like evoking and or not even evoking but just like you know not trying to depict something that it isn't and being like an active like political satire mm -hmm. but that and i feel like the what where you sort of run to a problem is like because the spirit is such a is a character that is like so clearly like rooted in the 40s and like still talks like a guy from the 40s <laughs> and like you know is it like you said still wears a fedora and like is still presented in that way it is also like a little tough where even like one of the like ideas of like the modernization that i saw is like now ellen helps him like solve crimes with the internet and it's like i mean i was a teenager when this was coming out but like are we buying that like a man who seems to be in his kind of like late 20s early 30s needs to have someone else in 2008 be like, and this is what's called a laptop computer. You can use it to get online and find all sorts of cool information. Like, I buy that if it's, like, the 90s spirit, but I'm not sure if, like, in 2008, like, this guy theoretically, like, the internet has been around for as long as he has. Yeah. And, like, yeah, and that's, like, sort of where it seems to not quite be able to make up its mind is, like, is this about a guy a hero from the 40s sort of like existing in our time or is it supposed to be stories like the kind of stories you might see in the 40s but sort of updated for a more contemporary era and i feel like it's more the former the spirit is always like like he never stops being or feeling like he's from the 40s and like mm -hmm. to a certain extent the other like primary like I don't ever feel like Pagel is like. <laughs> yeah, she was born in 1983. Yeah. 
Yeah. Here's what I will again refer to the the Cook's spirit memo. He says, uh, to undertake a monthly endeavor of this magnitude, there are two mandates that have to be pursued with equal commitment and enthusiasm. One, preserve if humanly possible uh, and if humanly possible, enrich the core essence of the spirit. Give longtime readers a contemporary look at the magic that has held them for decades and introduce a new generation to the irresistible pull of this rich human drama. Action, crime, romance, humor, and pathos will all be generously employed in the spirit of the original strip. All caps. There will be no deconstruction. Every sure. story will try to add and hopefully strengthen the essence of Eisner's characters and vision. So I do think that that is sort of like, you know, I, I think that he both is... I guess it seems like it's not really important to him whether it's like, are we bringing a 40s sensibility to the modern day or are we telling a story about like a guy from the 40s in the modern day? He's sort of like, I don't really care. What I'm more focused on is like the humanity at the core of the spirit character and like, you know, the excitement and the magic of the the tradition that this character kind of brings with him. Yeah, but then that's why I'm like, well, then why like... And I, you know, I heard what he said before, but it's like, then why put it in such like a specified era where it's like, so naturally going to like distract from like that sort of core idea? Because I think like it is at its best when like when it's good, you're like, well, it doesn't really matter when this takes place, really. Like, it doesn't really matter whether this is like 2007 or 1987 or 1947, Mm -hmm. like there is that like timelessness feel to it. And so that I feel like is when it's being effective. And then whenever it's like, and I'm on BNN and it's both Litzer and <laughs> like, and all that stuff is like, Oh, well like this is just like, <laughs> why are we doing this? And aren't right. you better than this? Right. Well, yeah, it's interesting. We haven't talked about Cook's politics really at all, but they are kind of like an interesting part of his legacy. Not in so far as like he had all these crazy beliefs, so much as that like it was not an arena that he felt shy about wading into and he is a very much kind of like mid-aughts centrist type right where like did you read his issue of solo no so there are two like little blurbs in solo one of which has uh slam bradley basically like confront an ann coulter type to be like if you don't, if you didn't serve in the military, you don't get to have a say in what like is or is not a good use of like the military's time, energy, like resources. And then there's also a question story, which has like the question, like infiltrate an Al Qaeda camp and assassinate 13 people (laughs) with like, with like this very philosophical overlay about how like the the like basically global media has like lost sight of what 9-11 was like about and the fact that like there are 13 guilty people who need to be punished it's very intense (laughs) and then as part of dc's like post 9-11 kind of like tribute issue he wrote this story that uh, it's not it's not even a story it's like a graphic essay basically about how like as a culture we idealize the wrong people and instead of paying you know, basketball players millions of dollars, we should pay firemen millions of dollars and sort of things things to that effect. All of which I think is like very well-intentioned on his part. It's like, it's funny because it's not something that he really talks about like 
he's not giving an interview where he's like, this is what I think about like the U.S. intervening in Afghanistan. And like, it's also all kind of like, it's interesting because it becomes through the lens of a guy who was born and raised and lives in Canada as, as we do. Yeah. But, but he, yeah, he, it just is clearly something that he thought about. It was not something that he was shy to include in his work. And then after his death, he was kind of like claimed by the comics gate movement as like someone who they were like, Darwin Cook would have agreed with us. And I can see where like some people might have drawn some of those conclusions based on like how he kind of talks about the state of the industry and the state of superheroes and some of these like, again, like the, the bent of some of the political content of his comics. Now his wife came out and instantly was like, he definitely would not, you are the scum of the earth and Darwin would want nothing to do with you. So I do think that that kind of puts that theory to uh, to rest. But I do think it's interesting what people can read into into his work. And I do think that this, like that one issue of the spirit in which he like, he does kind of put like the Colbert report and like the O'Reilly factor in the same camp, basically as like both being part of the same problem yeah well like, like, that's it, it doesn't very... shock me yeah it's it's more like anti-media than it is like specifically political i guess it's also like just a very mid-2000s kind of outlook on things that like oh like the far left and the far right like we, you know like <laughs> that that whole concept i think was much more commonly accepted and palatable yes, in the mid-2000s i think and just like yeah i mean like i think it was almost like praiseworthy like to be in the middle and be like well i'm actually like very objective and mm-hmm. i like consider things from both sides and that was like the thing that you should strive to be so you know i don't have i'm not i don't like begrudge him for his no they are definitely on politics of the time but it's also like i don't i truly could go my entire life without like reading any kind of political satire period <laughs> but particularly from like the mid 2000s yes yeah you should you should read that question story it's pretty crazy it's like it sounds it's psychotic. like five pages in in solo um and the art is really good and when i saw like oh darwin cook doing a question story i was like match made in heaven seems seems perfect but it is like it's a wild ride i'm not i'm still not really sure what i think about it like i finished it and i was like huh this is demented <laughs> but i'm like is this good is this bad is this problematic i don't really know it seems like a really good take on the character but it's all it's so short and like in some ways so cryptic but anyways yeah i think you know i think that's true of these stories well like where it's like i really like like, basically anything with the spirit, I think, mm-hmm. is like, oh, like, I like the way that he depicts the spirit. I like the spirit. Like, I think the spirit's a cool guy. I think if his goal was to be like, I'm introducing a new audience to how cool the spirit is. Yeah, I mission think that, accomplished, I would say, on that front. Yeah, I definitely think he succeeds on that front. But then it's like, okay, my story is about a musician who <laughs> becomes addicted to meteor the rain. Runoff. Yeah, the runoff <laughs> from a meteor. <laughs> and the spirit, like, well, I mean, this is the something that's like of, not even really in that one. Yeah, I was, and I was reading about this when I was sort of just uh, like reading about the spirit and reading about Eisner's sort of original spirit stories. It's just like the idea that like sometimes the spirit is just like there. <laughs> yeah. And like it's a, it's a completely different story that doesn't really have anything to do with the spirit. And so, like, in that regard, I'm not like, why is it the spirit punching the guy? Mm-hmm. But 
it's just an insane story. It is an insane itself, story. But it's like, I do, yeah, I do think that he really captured like the vibe and the energy of the Eisner spirit stories. I was also thinking like it took me, it took me like a few days to read them all, not because I was like struggling to get through them, but like you finish one issue and it's kind of like that was a satisfying story, and like I don't feel compelled as compared to like say someone like Vaughn who we talked so much about how he keeps the momentum issue to issue where you like are compelled to read the next one almost as soon as you put it down with these spirit stories, which are pretty much all one and done in ones. I finished each one and was like, that was a satisfying story. And I don't feel compelled to read anymore, even though the next one, like literally all I have to do is turn the page and like another complete compelling story like awaits me. And it was interesting because I like some people really pine for like a return to one and dones in kind of like the mainstream comics industry, which historically has not been something that really appeals to me. Like done in ones, I usually don't find like narratively satisfying in a single issue. But these really did make the case for me where I was like, I haven't been like a weekly like Wednesday warrior type in like probably almost 10 years now. But like I could see myself buying a title like The Spirit monthly because it's it's just like a good read and it's it feels worth it to me. Like I don't feel compelled to check in on him more than once a month. Like I'm not craving more content, but I always have a good time like when I engaged with it and I could see myself like having a good year reading those issues once a month and and never feeling like I need more spirit or like this is not worth my time. So, so yeah, it was just interesting where I have kind of felt like the monthly model is dead <laughs> or, or should be dead for a long time. And like sure. writers don't really write in a way that is sustainable for the monthly model anymore. But these were like a weird sort of throwback in just in how, I guess, like compelling as a potential monthly story I felt that they were. Yeah. And like to me, I think he what he does a really good job of is like, it felt to me like the thing it most reminded me of. I think part of it was the art style, but what it really reminded me of was like a kid's magazine that I mm-hmm. would read like when I was like 10 years old or whatever, where it's like there are a bunch of like random articles and like all these little things. And also like there's a comic section and they're like little like one page comics or like one to five page comics about stuff. Like that's sort of like what it felt like. And it's like, oh, like, well, that is very much in keeping with the character where it's like, you have the spirit section of the newspaper right. where like and it's get... and they were all like eight page stories like i read this interview that cook did with a, like an eisner biographer who had like just basically like put the put the capstone on his like final biography be, like when around when this came out which was a couple of years after eisner died and they were talking about the monthly series and the biographer was basically like has there ever been a 22 page spirit story <laughs> and cook was like yes but like not many because the usual like the spirit stories in the spirit section were usually only eight pages and like most of the stuff that eisner did with the spirit was like five to eight pages or less right i think it's a certain style of storytelling too that almost like lends itself well to comics in some ways where it's like the characters don't really change but also like they can like you can bring in a character, like, you can bring in, what's her name, Satin? Mm-hmm. Agent, Silk Agent Satin. Silk Satin, yeah. Well, like, you can bring her and be like, yeah, I was just in Lebanon doing this. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, it's not, it's like, that's not continuity. It's just like, you know, you're 
it's just like oh like there's some timeline that's running like outside of my vision and then like i dip in and here's like a story of what happened on this specific day for the spirit right and like that sort of like i get how that can be sort of frustrating and feel stale maybe or like not like it's sort of like spinning its wheels ultimately but then like when you have a character like this where it's like they've been around for 60 years it it is it is more of a newspaper comic thing right where it's like my circum their circumstances will never really significantly change mm-hmm. you can introduce new characters around them but the tone and like the format is ultimately going to be pretty similar and you can just like keep going eternally yeah. and you know this does do something like it does give us a spirit origin story it does yeah a like minor kind of retcon or like reboot right and you know like and then towards the end it does start to have more of uh not episodic but a serialized sort of structure to it which i feel like is kind of for better and worse in a way like did did that feel to you like he was just like this is what i want to do or did that feel more like something that was mandated to you in a way no i do think that that was something that he wanted to do like i think that I think that he was, like, conscious of the fact that, like, as much as when you get into, like, deep nerd circles and comic circles specifically, it's not hard to unearth someone who is a, like, spirit maniac. Even amongst, like, comics fans, he is a pretty niche character. Like, he's a pretty deep cut. And so I think that that for the same reason that he was, like, pretty gung-ho about the Batman spirit special he recognized that like you need some kind of like hooks into people to get them to sort of get on board with this character that they don't really know anything about and and to give him a shot and so i think the fact that the whole like el morte story is seeded through all of the other ones even when it is extremely episodic is like partially to like you know as much as i just said like he's not that focused on getting people interested in like coming back for more cliffhangers or anything like that. I do think that he wanted to have a story as a through line so that as much as you get your like spirit episode for the month, there's also something that gives you like a reason to return other than just to see what the spirit gets up to next time. Yeah. I guess mainly it's just surprising to me that like he does, he has this like particular through line and serialized story, but also that, the, the story that he chooses to make like the through line story is so far outside of what we've sort of seen so far in terms of making it like so supernatural focused and like one like one of the climactic issues is just about like fighting a zombie army mm-hmm. that, that yeah. does feel weird to me yeah i think that thematically he was interested in like the idea of sort of like the the reborn versus the undead or like the resurrected versus right. the undead and and the idea that like if the spirit is kind of like the best possible outcome for a like return from the grave like sort of what is right. the dark you know twin to that what's the worst possible outcome yeah and i think you can make that work without it being about like zombies yeah <laughs> because well, like, I didn't, I, like, I, and i didn't think it was going to like literally be a zombie thing like Basically, until they did the, like, El Morte origin issue where they introduced his mother and made it, uh, like, oh, she, like, literally cast a spell. Like, up until that point, all we knew really was, like, 
he he like got the same thing that the spirit got except he was like stuck in his coffin for a long yeah. time and it like really beeped him up <laughs> which i think is a really cool idea and like yeah. and then it's like oh like well he looks like it's like the red skull or whatever where it's like oh yeah. he looks all messed up and like a zombie because he was like in his coffin and yeah. that like and like and like sustained by the like chemical alone or think like yeah something like that that is like oh how horrifying like what a good what a good like pulp story basically <laughs> origin sure. for a villain but then it's so like, to inject the like and also his mother is like a voodoo practitioner or something. yeah it's like well like and it's like he's not undead is he uh, see i don't know i get like I would have said no until we got to those like final issues where it's like, and now you're king of the zombies, right? Because I like it's like, oh, like well, they dug him up and he was like still alive, yeah, and that makes sense. But then it's like, oh, and then also like you happen to look like a zombie, which is a mm-hmm. thing that I like know how to do. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's confusing as well because he present like in his own sort of story it's like i was alive in my grave but then also my mother performed a ritual to bring me back to life and so it's like well but the ritual that again this is why i would have said no because he seems like his sort of thing should be that it's like kind of not clear what about him is like science induced versus what is supernatural and like his kind of fear effect on the spirit is that he like curses him and there's this sort of tension for the spirit of like is this like a real thing like am i actually cursed by this guy or is this just like kind of you know a combination of like evil planning and happenstance and like scare tactics and things like that like i think that tension between like basically how much of this is real is like kind of an interesting story hook so to but yeah but then like to have the origin be like he was alive and then she did a ritual and he got out of the grave but the ritual didn't seem to have anything to do with that but the ritual also does later successfully raise a zombie army from the river yeah it is it is a bit confused uh or a bit i guess like busy i would say yeah are there any other specific issues i mean we'll talk about the batman one in a bit but are there any other specific ones from this run you wanted to talk about i mean of course the character of hussein yes hussein hussein uh good character i think he's I'm, fun i'm a i'm a double h fan for sure <laughs> um yeah there's not a specific issue i mean i was curious to hear if you had a favorite issue from the bunch since they are so very like one and done let me look through here and see if i can find a specific one like mainly like i said like I like all the characters, I'd say, is, like, my main feeling mm-hmm. on the matter. It's, like, I like the spirit, I like Pigel, I like Silk Satin, I like the police chief and Ellen. Like His hair is wild. <laughs> oh, you it's mean just Spike? Like, yeah. <laughs> I was, like, this is an interesting stylistic decision. And then I was looking at, like, old Eisner spirit stories, and I was, like, oh, that's also just how Eisner drew him. <laughs> this guy's hair is wild. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, like, and the art we can also talk about, like, it Mm -hmm. is a weird sort of mishmash of, like, trying to evoke the old style. Because, like, it is more, like, straightforward Darwin Cook style than it is, like, New Frontier. Yeah, I would actually, in fact, say that this is kind of the, like, signature Cook, like, especially ladder Cook. Like, this creative team of, like, Cook doing pencils, J-Bone inking, and Dave Stewart coloring, and Jared K. Fletcher on uh, on letters. These are, like, guys that he has all worked with um, 
individually or or in like some connections at this point but now like bringing them all together is kind of like the cook look basically so i do think of this as being like i i don't feel like he is doing really like an eisner imitation uh, although like again he is evoking him a bit certainly the way that the spirit himself is drawn like he is mm -hmm. very like square jawed yeah but i but i do think that like it is it is kind of like the signature cook aesthetic in a lot of ways and this creative team is sort of like his his dream team i guess you could say and scott dunbeer is the editor as well on this series is um i don't think i i think they would have worked together on the absolute uh new frontier but i'm also not sure if that's before this or after this but so they they get connected uh, at this point and then dunbeer will also be the editor for parker and we'll put together the two like deluxe martini edition books of uh of that he's a, he's like a guy we haven't really talked about at all but is sort of an interesting figure in the like comics landscape sure um i guess my favorite is the first uh hussein hussein one <laughs> with pagel and the uh the Karifistani prince. Yeah. <laughs> I did see Karifistan and instantly think we must we must have an opportunity to say Karifistan out loud. Yeah, and and just I I really there should be a collection. Oh, of like fictional Middle Eastern countries. Yes, yeah. the one yeah. I well, of course, uh, as you know, we are fans of the Christian. Family audio drama <laughs> adventures and odyssey, yes, and the one I always think of is Rakistan. Yes, yeah, the <laughs> Rakistanis, uh, home to the terrorist organization Red Scorpion. Uh, yeah. Well, of course, developers they... of the Ruku virus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, we are we are definitely, I think, connoisseurs of fake Middle Eastern countries and especially fake Middle Eastern country names. Um, but I agree that like. It could be its own wiki. Like, have you ever looked at the villains wiki? I know I once sent you the screenshot of Immortan Joe's hobbies as listed on <laughs> as listed on the villains wiki, which include like drowning his people with water and raping his wives, which is so so dark. And like the quotes pages on the villains wiki, things like that. Uh, anyways, I was recently looking at some for um, someone someone from the boy comic not the tv show but the comic and it was like hobbies controlling his teammates through fear and violence yeah, doing <laughs> evil like, that's not a hobby yeah the morton joe's hobby uh, hobbies on the villains wiki raping his wives preaching to his followers <laughs> showing control over the wastelands resources <laughs> <laughs> so stupid <laughs> anyways I feel like a list of something like the the like an inventory of the fictional Middle Eastern countries from like every genre and property <laughs> and medium belongs on its own wiki similar to the villains wiki. Who okay, I'm gonna give you some hobbies and you have to guess who the, okay. who the villain is. Okay. Torturing his enemies. Okay. Manipulating and force choking his officers when they <laughs> fail him. Slaying rebels. <laughs> Could it be Darth Vader? Meditating. <laughs> <laughs> Killing Jedi. <laughs> 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 Just... <laughs> 
list these things as hobbies. And then it's just like anything that they do is considered a hobby. Oh my goodness. Oh, I'm so sweaty. <laughs> We've already gone so far off the rails. I should never have invoked the Immortan Joe <laughs> villain's wiki page. Oh, oh boy, boy, boy. Um, but yes, I would say my favorite issue, probably the first Silk Satin issue. She's cool. Did you uh, did you catch all the diegetic like title pages? They're not exactly subtle. Yeah, kind of. Like I, sometimes it was just like hard to read. Um, yes. Also, that's almost like part of the bit, though, is to right. like how how well can you hide them? <laughs> right. And like, I think I think part of the my affection for the first silk satin one is how good that one is, which is where the shadow of the cactuses spells it out on the sand, and they're like walking over the top of it, and like looking at the cactuses and being like. What a cunning design he's employed here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this backwards S-shaped cactus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, the other thing to note in that issue is that Silk Satin has the Batman cursive. Oh, yeah. Well, I found it more legible than, uh, than full-on Batman cursive, I will say. Sure. I think Batman's handwriting is a little more... Uh, well, he's, he's the son of a doctor. Hey, <laughs> Same as me. <laughs> but yes, the uh, the like spirit logo title pages also a hallmark of uh, sure. of the Eisner spirit stories and something that people like. I'm convinced like the main reason that artists are eager to work on the spirit is to be like, I've got this great idea for a logo page. Sure. And I think especially for Cook, like coming from the world of like design and art direction probably was just like rubbing his grimy little hands together with the idea of like, <laughs> aha. Yeah, he does like, because Eisner also sort of has a background like that, doesn't he? Where he would... Who does? Eisner, where he worked in well, comics, yeah, he had, but he also... Of course, the Eisner and Iger studio. Sure. Of um, no relation, but yes relation. <laughs> right, sure. But what? So what exactly is the deal with the spirit? Like, is it just that he was that popular that I don't, people, see, I don't like, even have know if I would to say that he him? was that popular. Like, he definitely was popular, but I mean, like, well, I mean, it's probably not a good comparison to say Superman was popular too, but like, like the Atom was popular too, or like you know, Wildcat was also popular. Right, Wildcat. Like, I don't. I don't think he was like a like he he was not Superman level popular in to my knowledge. But it's like certainly he was not in, in terms of his like cultural impact because again, he was in like newspapers. Yeah, he was in newspapers, and like I think if you went up to the, an average person on the street and were like what is the first thing that comes into your mind when I say, Will Eisner's the spirit? They would be like, what are you talking about? Right, sure. I I really think that a lot of it is tied up in, like, the Eisner legacy. The fact that it is, like, a serialized story in the superhero tradition and the fact that the license is, like, available. Where it's like, this guy is, like, a revolutionary artist whose influence on modern comics art is like pretty much impossible to overstate whether directly or through just like shaping the the cultural like direction of the medium as a whole so the opportunity to like play in his playground is hard to pass up for a lot of people and then the fact that like a company can get their hands on it for a license fee 
like pretty readily. Yeah, I, I think that it's a, just a combination of opportunity and like the stature of Eisner himself and, and being able to be a part of kind of like that that like collective myth making alongside one of the like legends of the industry. Yeah, and I guess like that sort of ties in with like the whole Cavalier and Clay idea. Like that I feel like is inspired by the spirit to some extent, I imagine, or at least like he- sort of heroes of that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his staying power, I mean, part of it is also the fact that, like, Kitchen was able to get Eisner to, like, agree to reprints. And so, like, obviously, Darwin Cook wasn't sitting around in 1949 reading his, like, Sunday spirit stories. But he was 13 when Kitchen Sink Press and Warren Press were, like, and now, like, magazine reprints of every spirit story ever. And, like... You know, these these reproductions are coming out basically like nonstop for a, a select kind of period there. So it did kind of have like a second wave in the sort of like 70s, 80s era. Again, not that 90s, it like, whatever. Yeah. You know, Bob FM type stuff. The Bob um, FM years. Yeah. And again, not that it like grabbed hold like so tight, but it was it, it did sort of reassert itself around that time. And because you have like Eisner then at that point becoming even more so sort of like the grandfather of the graphic novel and kind of like a leading theorist and sort of like this this statesman of the industry. Like I do think like, for example, the fact that there's a spirit movie and it's yeah. written and directed by Frank Miller, one of the true wild things. <laughs> <laughs> that that is true is real but i but that's feel like, like that only because sin city existed right well sin city is extremely influenced by the spirit i would say um in in so far as like it takes kind of some of the things that are prevalent in the spirit and turns the dial up to like 11 on them but i do think that part of what probably got him into it and like starting to work on some of those ideas was those war and press reprints that when he was, you know, in his, like, probably, like, early to late Daredevil phase, like, before he had done Dark Knight Rises, before he had done Year One, he's, like, a young professional in his early 20s, and they start cranking out all these spirit reprints. I don't doubt that he was reading those and, like, taking ideas from them and thinking, like, it would be cool to do a book like this that is so much about, like, you know, being being a tough guy on the mean streets of a big city. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm just looking at this, and, like, he's saying he's influenced by, like, the noir movies as well, which, of course, you know, is sort of like a common DNA there. Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk about Batman slash the spirit? It's got my favorite logo page. What's that? He's, like, running along the Pier 16 sign, oh, and then it yes, gets, yes, like, yes. shot out, and then there's the panel of him falling yeah. alongside the letters, which spell out, spirit. <laughs> yes, well, of course, you have to do your spirit. What's his name? Michael Caine? Ichabod Crane. Uh, what's oh, that guy's uh, name? Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge. <laughs> I think I'm losing Old it. Ebb. I've really had trouble. I was trying to remember Geraldo Rivera's name today when I was reading that issue where they t- they do a Geraldo Rivera parody, but it's like Eugenio Sanchez or whatever. Okay, you know about, sure. You know about Geraldo? No. Do you know about Al Capone's vault? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but basically... They they found this thing. Geraldo at large. <laughs> Indeed. 
Uh, basically, like, they found, it was like, there's a walled-off room in this hotel in Chicago that okay. was owned by Al Capone. And so it's like, oh, like, these are Al Capone's vaults. And so they were like, we're going to have a live, like, this big special. It's like a two-hour live special that Geraldo Rivera, who's like this TV personality, is going to host. And he is going, and we're like, we're going to open Al Capone's vaults and see what's inside. And like, we're all going to see it live. And then they opened the vaults and there was nothing inside. <laughs> Uh, I'll read directly from Wikipedia here. When the vault was finally opened, the only things found inside were dirt and several empty bottles, including one Rivera claimed was for moonshine bathtub gin. After several attempts to dig further into the vault, Geraldo admitted defeat and voiced his disappointment to the viewers, apologizing as he thanked the excavation team for their efforts. I Anyways, will... I... wait, I just want to read one more thing for Please do. Wikipedia since it's somewhere in this corner. Geraldo said on the April 20th, 420 baby, uh, oh. 2016 edition of the Fox News Channel program, The Five, that he went right across the street and got tequila drunk after the special aired, <laughs> and went back to his hotel room and put the Do Not Disturb sign on the door. Uh, demented. Um, I do want to quickly take inventory of who all, who all, um, who... <laughs> <laughs> Who all are the television pundit talking heads who are lampooned in that issue? Because there were a couple that I was like, I'm not sure 100% that I am getting them. This is issue 10. And also, like, the crazy thing also is, like, the framing device of this. Because it's like, it's like, you have issue 9 is, like, the start of basically the the bigger, like, El Morte story. And then it's like, issue 10, like, we're not ready for the next issue yet, and so we're going to show you, like, a different story. And it's like, this weird metatextual thing, mm-hmm. where, like, Ebony White, who just... Oh, we, we should talk about Ebony White at some point, <laughs> yeah, for sure. because I saw a picture of what Ebony White used to look yeah. like, and <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Uh, do we want to have that detour now or later? <laughs> let's, let's do that now. We're, we're in the area. Um, yeah, Ebony White, Origins, minstrel show character, basically. Sure. I am just quickly going to find uh, a quote here for like, us to consider. Probably racist even at the time? Yeah. Yeah. I have a heart, like, I mean, it was the 30s. But it is like, it's like an antebellum South level depiction of a black person. Boy, yeah, it's, it's, it's like truly, truly like traditional, uh, like minstrel show visuals with like all that that entails in terms of like pitch black skin, like big, like enormous mouth painted like bright red. It's so, so insanely it's racist. The one, the one that they show on Wikipedia is like, Here's the spirit, like, it intimately rendered in, like, photorealistic detail. Mm-hmm. And next to him is Ebony White, who looks insane. Yeah, and, like, he's always depicted basically, like, panicking and, like, sweating or crying or, like, screaming his head off. Like, right. generally being, you know, extremely effusive. Eisner did say that he was stereotyping 
like the with he was using ebony white basically to like stereotype black people but said quote that he tried to do so with responsibility and argued that at the time humor consisted in our society of bad english and physical difference in identity uh which true i guess (laughs) like i suppose i can't dispute that Ah, yes. Here is the quote I was looking for in an accompanying feature article in the in an issue of the New York Herald Tribune. Eisner's former office manager, Marilyn Mercer, wrote, and I quote here directly, Ebony never drew, drew criticism from Negro groups. In fact, Eisner was com- commended by some for using him, perhaps because although his speech pattern was early minstrel show, he himself derived from another literary tradition. He was a combination of Tom Sawyer and Penrod with a touch of Horatio Alger hero, and color didn't really come into it. Now, she is also writing in 1966, um, so not exactly like a more a more... Uh, evolved civilization at that sure. point per se but that feels like a pretty pretty shaky ground i think to try and uh yeah i mean like the argument i guess like that they're making is like he's not depicted as being like stupid or and like he he is like helpful or like, yeah he, like, but, he, like, but it's like he's got like I would say that a villain talking about him would be like, ah, yes, white. He possesses a certain low cunning. <laughs> like, that's the kind of, like, you know, intelligence that Ebony White is, like, allowed to show in, right. in the, like, Eisner spirit strips. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a tough one to defend. Because... Yeah. Any any defense that one might mount could just be countered by here's a picture of the character. Yeah, it's it's really it it is it is tough and like that's without even like showing one of his speech balloons, which is like a <laughs> right. whole a whole another level. Uh, I will quote once again from the spirit memo here. A note about Ebony. Ebony is vital to the spirit mythos, and as such, I would recommend we use him as a character and simply create a dignified but cartooned design. I am sensitive to any concerns over this. It's it's pretty much all he has to say about it. Yeah, and that's pretty much all the book really has to say about it. Just like I mean, it's not exactly a high bar to clear, but he certainly is like a real character, so that's a good start. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I like him in this book. Like, I think it's a fun idea. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't feel like a sidekick in some ways. Like, he sort of has his own stuff going on. Yes. He, um, it's, it's like a point of, like, interest, it seems like, for Cook, because likewise in The New Frontier, Hal Jordan's extremely racist sidekick, Pieface is right. briefly introduced, and when Hal calls him Pieface, he's basically like, "My name is Tom. <laughs> like, would appreciate if you called me that." This character played by Taika Waititi in the Green Lantern movie. Are we aware of this? What? I thought he was played by the Big Bang Theory guy. Which, <laughs> which one? <laughs> the main one, Sheldon? No. The Howard? real main one. No. Kaylee Cuoco. <laughs> no. And not Raj either. <laughs> That's Wait, is that one crazy that he's played. Uh, Johnny Galecki. Yeah, is, that guy. It is indeed played by Taika White. That's crazy. 
why did I think? But but that like uh, Johnny Galecki is in that movie, right? Uh, no. I have what? Control F Galecki, and I have not. What am I thinking any of? Results. I don't know. Uh, I will look at Johnny Galecki's filmography, and you continue with uh, anything you wanted to talk about. I mean, there isn't really that much, to be honest. Wow. I yeah. This is this is blowing me away. <laughs> oh, he's in the movie Rings. Maybe that's what you were thinking. Of. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't the third believe movie so. In the Ring uh, series of films. No, I do not believe so. Cast based on his performance in Boy. Wow fascinating so anyways Hancock I'm not gonna rule that out (laughs) oh Tamura Morrison is also Abin Sur that's funny that's good casting we should watch that movie maybe it's good (laughs) I I don't think that it is but can't imagine it is but anyways I do I do appreciate that he seems interested in reclaiming these characters who you know it's it's like especially at the time like i feel like the easy thing to do would have just been like to leave them out which is just like a different problem so his commitment to like having them in and also like giving them humanity is a good good start but also like a sense of like agency to a certain extent and like allowing them to be real characters in the same way as the characters who they are like ostensibly supporting maybe not so much uh pie face who really is only in the one scene but um but certainly like ebony is is a supporting character throughout this run on the same level as like ellen i would i would say he's probably in about as many issues and gets a roughly similar amount of page time yeah and i think there is like there there's sort of a built-in something to their relationship because he is a child (laughs) yeah and so like that does sort of like it's not like you can create. I guess you could make like an adult version of Ebony where like they're just friends. Yeah, right. But that's it's hard. Of, it's it hard does, for it the spirit not to feel somewhat paternal and authoritative when yes, it's exactly. like textually Ebony is thirteen <laughs> and drives a cab. Uh, but Batman, the spirit, which does like it gives like different depictions of the characters also. Yeah, well, it came first. It, came it was first. the it, as I said, it was something that they had been working on for a long time. I know Cook never got a chance. Like he met Eisner, but he never got a chance to actually talk with him about the spirit specifically or these projects, which was a, a like point of disappointment for him. But I do think that he had like ample opportunity to give input on all of this and i also think that cook you know jeff Loeb is uh is joining here to collaborate as the writer so i i do think that like probably there were elements of cook's run that were not necessarily like completely developed yet at this point it also is like takes place at a (laughs) <laughs> Un- unclear point in the past like how long in the past is not really going to say it takes place in Hawaii <laughs> well it does take place in Hawaii <laughs> that's that's undeniable but yeah like the design for for example um is it the carrion or just carrion it's just carrion is is pretty different um i will say joker especially when they are in Hawaii, straight up just looks like uh, Poppy from the Proud Family, sure. <laughs> which I know, like, part of the joke is that Poppy is supposed to kind of look like the Joker, but yes. like the overlap there is like quite <laughs> pronounced when they have him in like a Tommy Bahama shirt and like beach and not shorts. wearing makeup. Yeah, yeah. 
but anyway, so like I think the fact that it kind of takes place in the past, the fact that it's like sort of divorced from what his run is necessarily going to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I do think that he's using some sort of like uh, classic designs for some of these characters. Although yeah. I do note that Catwoman is, of course, wearing his design. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's mostly just, like, a fun story. Like, they, yeah. it's, it's the sort of classic, I feel like, crossover thing where it's, like, we're going to pair off the villains yeah. who sort of have a similar bent to them. And, and swap so that, like, Batman fights spirit villains and spirit fights Batman villains. And right. Yeah, and then I do think uh, like having having Pigel and Ivy <laughs> like as the the seductresses of the two police commissioners is a funny bit. The scene where Pigel meets Barbara is really funny. Yes, absolutely. And also, like the central conceit of this, the central conceit is demented. <laughs> so we're where are we? <laughs> we are at the. Policeman's Benevolent Association's <laughs> annual law enforcement conference. Sure. In Hawaii, which, of course, Dolan and Gordon, being two police commissioners, attend. Of um, And the Joker... Ha- so what I'm not clear on here exactly is how the Batman rogues and the spirit rogues, like linked up with each other to be like we're all going to collaborate to bomb this convention i guess the idea is just that like because every every evildoer in the country is like <laughs> because it's like this. there's a policeman's convention in town we will also have our villains convention yeah that is everyone that is kind of it but like they are they're not they weren't gonna be there anyways or like it's not like they regularly have a villains yeah, convention yeah. and they were like let's just do it in the same place as all these cops like the reason that they are all together is to blow up all of the policemen right <laughs> yeah scarface and ventriloquist uh wear a problematic costume and ventriloquist has to hold back scarface who is saying let me at him let me at him which is <laughs> incredible the whole tone is like the whole tone really is pretty crazy. wild yeah. and it's very and it like it's the same thing where it's like i feel like i'm reading like a kid's magazine not even in a bad way just like the tone it's so like it plays so loose with continuity i think is yeah. the big thing it is it is a real like confection yes <laughs> in terms of like it's just like completely empty but like lots of fun basically yeah you have of course the Darwin Cook's Batman, drawn in the Darwin Cook way, with the shallow Mm -hmm. V. Of course. Uh, And then a semi-nonsensical conclusion where they dress up like each other. Yeah, that part makes no sense. Um, But, hey, what can you do? And also, like, why? (laughs) Also, like, why? Um, I I mean, I guess it does work to distract Joker for, like, one second. I do think it's a funny bit that, like, they plan this whole thing and then Joker, like, messes it up on purpose because he, like, wants attention. Like, I think that that's... It's a fun conceit that, like, it would have worked if not for, like, Joker being Joker. Yeah. Uh, If not for the twisted machinations of that demented clown. Yes, instead of shooting Gordon... So yes, the the idea is Poison Ivy seduces uh what's his face? Dolan. Dolan. Dolan Dank to shoot Gordon, but it's one of the Joker's classic bang guns. Mm-hmm. 
but then it, there's a bomb also <laughs> that he's going to set off, but that is confetti that the Joker has planted because he wants to, like, shoot everyone with a Tommy gun. Yes, the old-fashioned way. Yes. And he was in disguise as uh, as Gordon? Do Am I recalling that correctly? Yes, he is Gordon. Yep, and Octopus arranged it all, but... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like, the whole thing is like, sure, like... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, lots of fun visuals. The story's fine. It's fun. I had a good time. It is, like... I'm not sure if I would necessarily read this and then be like, I have to pick up the spirit number one. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... I think it is certainly... It feels like the audience is Darwin Cook to some extent. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> That's... That's fair. This was co-written with Jeff Loeb as well. But, like, yes. it does feel like a real, like, comics fan's comic. But then it's also, like, if it's a comics fan's comic, why does it have this tone? Well, I mean, I do think that there is a, a market for this. It's like, it is it is a little surprising considering, again, when it came out specifically. Like, this is very much the, like, Infinite Crisis and post-Infinite Crisis kind of era and, like... I don't know if you like noticed it all, but um, like the the spirit is kicking off like in the midst of fifty two and like right, yeah identity crisis. I feel like it's a pretty like grim and gritty era for DC. So I'm not sure how much appetite there was at this point for this kind of like very lighthearted, very kind of like bright and sweet sort of story. But certainly, like, today, um, like, there would be all kinds of, of kind of, like, pro-this voices saying things like, comics should be fun, comics should be crazy, they don't have to always be so, like, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and yeah, being, yeah, like, I guess, I guess that it would, in many senses, be a comics fan's comic of today i'm just not sure if it was one of 2007 but it's always been well received and uh, you know i think talked about positively by those who know about it because i don't think despite a run by darwin cook who is um like an a-list level creator and a movie like i don't think that the spirits kind of cultural profile is that much bigger than it was at the time even amongst comics fans no, that's what kind of confuses me is, like, who was reading The Spirit at this time? Like, I mean, and that's not, like, there's nothing, I don't have anything negative per se to say about it that we haven't already talked about, but, like, why is it, like, is it just being resurrected now because DC had it and they wanted to do it? I think that they had it, they wanted to do it, and they knew that a movie was coming, and so there's, mm. like, a certain amount of synergy tied to it that way is my is my sort of speculation and frank miller just gets like 60 million dollars for this movie because he just made sin city i guess i guess like did, he directed sin city huh i believe he did yes let me get the uh, why do i why do i think of that as a snyder joint because snyder directed 300 yeah uh, yeah that is why so it's like it is really like frank miller this guy can't miss because <laughs> it's like he <laughs> Oh, it's him and Robert Rodriguez co-direct Sin City. Right. So it is like, <laughs> Frank Miller, this guy can't miss in a weird way. Like, Sin City, it's made for 40 and it makes 160. 300 
costs 60 and makes 450 <laughs> and then and then they're like yeah you can make the spirit <laughs> yeah and i mean in answer to the question like who was reading the spirit the answer is like not that many people sure good segue Thanks. Um, number one debuts at number 58 on the the charts with 34,556, sandwiched right in between Nightwing number 127 and Miss Marvel number 10, which is like a solid, you know, it's it's not getting canceled. Yeah, type, I guess, you know, level. I guess my perception is maybe just like a little skewed versus like, to me, I'm always a little bit baffled about, like, like how did, like, Frankenstein and the Agents of Smash get greenlit? I, I guess that was, Agents like... Agents of Shade, please. <laughs> You're thinking of Hulk and the Agents of Smash. Sure. But, like, I guess that one is just, like, we have 52 comics we have to make. <laughs> but, yeah, like, and I'm it always... was canceled instantly. <laughs> And it's like, it, but it's like, how did you think that was going to be successful? And it's like, if you're making a spirit comic, like, you must know it's not going to be that successful. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's um, number 12 sells 18,879 is at number 112 in the list. Um, so it's not like doing gangbusters, but it is like it's hanging on and it runs for 32 issues total. The plan originally had been for Jay Bone to take over as the penciler uh, and Darwin Cook just to be writing the stories, but then they ran into scheduling issues. Bone wasn't available to do it, and Cook was basically like, "I can't keep, I can't keep doing this basically full time on a monthly schedule." So they just instead decided to bow out. Um, but it continues for another couple of years. Um, yeah, thirty-two issues, I think, is yeah. <laughs> Dementedly, Sergio Aragones takes over as the writer with Marc Avenier, which is a crazy team. They're best known, of course, for Gru the Wanderer, uh, an extremely long-running independent comic, uh, uh, like cousin of Usagi Yojimbo, basically. Right, but wasn't that just mainly successful because of the minions? <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, something foul entered my body and needed to be expelled. <laughs> Uh, via the ears. <laughs> Are you planning to put on a suit to go see uh, Gru? <laughs> I, Minions Rise of Gru? I do think that is funny, I will say. That is my opinion on the gentle Minions. <laughs> that's what that's called. <laughs> I did see a picture of like a sign placed in a movie theater window that's like, due to disturbances related to the gentle minions meme, we will not allow anyone in formal attire admission to, <laughs> to see Minions the Rise of Gru. Uh, I do think that is a good bit. I also do think that leave it for the youngsters, I say. Sure, yes. I am not planning to. No, I don't, uh, I don't think you are. But if any of our listeners out there um, mm -hmm. has a savings account, <laughs> I advise sure, you not yeah. to participate in the Gentle Minions meme. Your credit limit is in the quadruple if, digits. <laughs> if, your credit, if you have a credit limit, <laughs> sure. if, yeah, if I you're think legally eligible to hold a credit card. <laughs> maybe not that young. But I feel maybe like not that young. if you, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the cutoff <laughs> is, but... You should there's know. Some, there's some representation of adulthood that If you're old enough be to know better, thing. then you should know better. Yes. Um, anyways, awards-wise, um, Darwin Cook does 
get get some nods for this. Of course, Batman uh, slash the Spirit is the Eisner Award winner for best new or a uh, best single issue. That's crazy to me. Now, I mean the the competition. I was looking at this. Of course, this is the uh, the Gumby year, the year that. <laughs> Bob Burden picks up some big, big Dear wins for <laughs> some big wins for his Gumby reboot and uh, and also for the Flaming Carrot. So the other nominees for best single issue: A Late Freeze by Danica Novgorodov. Never heard of that. The Preposterous Adventures of Ironhide Tom by Joel Pretty. Never heard of that. Skyscrapers of the Midwest number three by Joshua Cotter. Never heard of that. They found the car by Gippy or Gippy. <laughs> Never heard of that. Um, not to say that any of those are not good. I have not read any of them, but I am not necessarily surprised that a very recognizable title by a very recognizable creative team beat out uh, a collection of independent comics. Featuring a character that was created by Will Eisner. <laughs> yes, and and like carried off with his blessing. Yeah. Yeah, but then it's like you look at like best continuing series, and it's like All Star Superman wins. Superman, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The other the other like categories are quite quite stacked. You've got Fables winning for best short story, Batman Year One Hundred for best limited series, Criminal for best new series, Gumby for best publication for a younger audience. Yeah, Fun Home in the uh, reality-based work, American Born Chinese for what should basically be original graphic novel, Absolute New Frontier, of course, for uh, for reprint. Yeah, lots of lots of strong stuff. And then down in the uh, writer and artist categories, it is Brew Baker for Captain America: Daredevil and Criminal, Paul Pope for Batman Year One Hundred for writer artist, um, um, Tony because... Millionaire. Yeah. Just because you mentioned Paul Pope, do do you uh-huh. want to talk about Dick Poop at all? No, I'm good. Although, um, <laughs> a Bill Pope is credited as like bystander number three in the spirit. So, hmm. just FYI on Interesting. that. Yeah, he didn't shoot that, did he? I, well, I went to look into it a bit further and got distracted by the fact that Gabriel mocked plays yeah. the spirit. What? In my opinion, good casting. Pretty good casting. He did Pretty shoot the spirit. Uh, there you have it. So, anyways, it uh, it, it does. Pick the up... octopus could never do. <laughs> <laughs> he does, of course, pick up uh, some additional nominations and awards. I believe he's nominated for best writer artist uh, in two thousand eight for the Spirit and wins a couple of Schuster's as well uh, in similar categories uh, and and I think picks up a nomination as well for best continuing series in 2008 and which we should also mention just because it's in the same era he win he wins back to back for best single issue because he wins for solo the previous year oh yes yes that that's right yeah, he <laughs> Your wins face the two- looked like I, you thought I was setting up for a joke uh, well I was like he definitely didn't win in 2008 right <laughs> um but yes, you are right. He did win for Solo in 2006 and then uh, for, for Batman the Spirit in 2007. So, so he's raking them in at this time. Yeah. Say. Yeah. He's definitely like an awards darling. He also like around this time, probably before he actually like got uh, the Spirit tap, but signed an exclusive with DC for a few years. So he was uh, all in on the DC projects. 
it actually, I believe, expired not too long after the spirit wrapped up. And I was reading an interview with him from around that time where talking about kind of like what's next for him. Um, he was very interested in digital comics at the time, which I think kind of shows through in some of the spirit stuff as far as like the YouTube, uh, yeah. you know, fascination and uh, like, I can't remember which issue it was, but there's, there was some reference to like computing technology that I was like, it seems like he's like kind of getting into like the internet. Right. <laughs> Oh, did we want to do uh, the <laughs> pundits? Oh yeah, I forgot that we were <laughs> talking about that. So, uh, well, let me let me finish my yeah, like yeah. post post spirit uh, talk, and then we can go back to that. So he did eventually release a digital comic called Teenage Satan with uh, Stephanie Buscema, who's the granddaughter of Marvel legend Sal Buscema. It pretty much no longer exists. Like, the website is down. I wasn't able to find it anywhere. Maybe it's archived on uh, on Internet Archive, but it's it's gone and seemingly forgotten. I've never seen anybody talk about it <laughs> basically anywhere other than cooking interviews. Um, and then the other thing that he said was he was interested in doing some original graphic novels with a broader mainstream appeal, basically like getting into bookstores and citing... Um, Chester Brown and Brian Lee O'Malley as fellow Canadian cartoonists whose careers he was watching very closely and of whom he was kind of envious of, not envious of, but admired their ability to connect with a wider mainstream audience and wanted to produce something um, as well that would kind of be a crossover hit, I guess, in that same way. What exactly that, like, nothing ever really came of that. Uh, in fact, we're in kind of a funny era where, like, pretty much everything else we're going to talk about either is or probably could or should be appended with, like, somebody else's name, possessive apostrophe S, right. title of the thing. <laughs> right. um, he's he, he goes all in on, you know, adaptations or revivals or what have you, which we'll maybe talk about a little bit more in the uh, the Before Watchmen episode. But it is uh, it is. both interesting and kind of tragic that he certainly had original ideas for his own his own ip and his own stories that so that he wanted to kind of birth whole cloth but we never really got to see those he primarily uh worked either as an artist for other people's writing or was focused on adaptations reboots etc so alas but uh indeed yeah and so we will uh, we will talk about Parker a little bit more in a bit, but first let's let's talk these pundits through. So Dandy O'Lion is Rosie O'Donnell. Ro- it is Rosie O'Donnell. It must be. Did so, she have a talk show? She did. Yes. Okay. So that was maybe where I was not connecting. Where I was like, it seems like it has to be Rosie O'Donnell, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. I forgot also that the conclusion of this is that Dandy O'Lion is Trust Wimbag. Uh, who obviously is a Rush Limbaugh stand-in. Yes, and she, so she was also, I think, on The View at this time, which is probably where right. she gets That's the, right. the more political bent to her. Trust right. Wimbag, of course, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, yeah. Mayor Noltley, of course, is Ann Coulter, right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Appearance she was one that wise. I was, she was one that I was, like, really struggling with because she doesn't ever really, like, get slated into like a political category per se she just like her her whole thing is kind of just like courting controversy yeah that's like an anticulture thing like i guess it could be nancy grace but it's she looks like anticulture 
her thing is she wants to have sex with the spirit. Uh-huh. And he says, you make my skin crawl. Wally Obelos, I think, is Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. The Wally's report uh, the logo, logo is, is yeah. an O'Reilly factor for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Flaubert factor, of course, is the Colbert report. Stephen Flaubert. And then there's one more. We see like another couple guys. Oh, well, there's... of course, there's Scooper Sanderson, <laughs> yes. which is Anderson Cooper, of course. One. Okay, so maybe Mustachio Hernandez is one that I wasn't getting. And that's Geraldo Rivera, I think. I think you are correct. And then there's two more, Garrity and Gnome. And Garrity, I think, is supposed to be Sean Hannity. I would imagine so. I have no idea who Gnome is supposed to be. Like, where are you seeing this? So right after uh, Mustachio Hernandez, there's two other pundits like talking with each other and their names are given on the following panel. I don't know who Gnome would be. Was Uh, Hannity on like a panel show or did he have like a co-host at any point? um, Jim Rome. (laughs) Yeah, I think he's just on the radio at this time. Sean Hannity was. so. So maybe it's not even supposed to be Sean Hannity. I think it must be. It just, it looks a lot like him, basically. And the name is quite similar as well. Yeah, the name is quite similar as well. And then the, like, I guess button kind of on this is a woman who may or may not have been a senior news anchor has, well, she's gone. Which I'm like, what's, what's that? Is that a reference? I have no idea. I'm, Mm. (laughs) I'm tapped out. I'm cooked. Mm. Uh, and then, yes, we get Ginger Coffee uh, waxing poetic about the state of the news media and the death of journalism. And what's crazy to me is, like, if you did do, like, a 2022 version of The Spirit, that it would honestly be Ginger Kofifi. I'm serious. <laughs> um, Ginger Coffee, of course, a Darwin Cook original character. As what is Hussein Hussein? What about uh, Kimball Richards? Did you catch that one? Oh, that is, I, I didn't until right now. <laughs> that is Argonaut Bones' boyfriend. Yes. Uh, who was, of course, Richard Kimball from The Fugitive. And I don't know, maybe other stuff, but primarily The Fugitive. Immortalized by the great John Mulaney bit where he summarizes the conclusion of The Fugitive. I'll take your word for it. So yes, lots of lots of pop culture references especially in number 10 but sort of just across the board he's not uh, he's not opposed uh, a few new original uh introductions that are new to the world of the spirit but by and large he is pulling characters from you know the depths of history to be used for these stories um I guess a final kind of look at the spirit memo and his plans for the first year He said, I would prefer to avoid a crossover with the DCU characters for the first year other than Batman the Spirit um, to allow us to consolidate the Spirit's character and world. This will keep us on track until we've established the tone and popularity of the series with our readers. Past this first year, I believe crossovers can be a great way to endear the Spirits to other fans and direct heat to the core Spirit book. As far as I know, they didn't really do anything with this iteration of the Spirit. They did subsequently use the spirit as part of the first wave uh, initiative the idea of which was like what if pulp in the dc universe and it was like it's like early superman it's i don't think superman is really even so much it's doc savage right 
a character who I don't, I don't know, maybe he was public domain at that point. I'm not sure what the rights deal is with that. But Doc Savage, the spirit, and then Batman, but Batman as like envisioned right, in the very Batman. earliest appearances. He has his guns uh, because famously there's like a handful of issues in like early, early Batman where he has guns. Right. I actually really like the Batman with guns like design. It is a good like pulp hero design. But uh, but that whole kind of initiative generally sputters out. I have not really read anything of it, but it was not very well received at the time. Yeah, it's like he, there's a Batman, Doc Savage, and then like Black Canary, the Black Hawks, Rima, the Jungle Girl, the Avenger, the Spirit, and the Fabulous Five. Yeah, so there, it's it was like an effort to fold some of these classic pulp heroes into the DC universe and like have kind of a full-on pulp book and Batman being so inspired by characters like the shadow it it made sense to kind of include him with that and then of course we've talked about some of the kind of pulpy elements of the spirit so he's not necessarily a bad fit except that like the whole first wave thing is so straight-faced and like serious whereas the spirit is a character with a lot of humor right so that seems like a tonal mismatch but what can one do what indeed well i think that that shall have to you've sent me an image here i'm opening the image oh, it's just batman with guns it's batman with guns he pretty much just is in a batman costume but he's got like double shoulder holsters yeah. and like two huge magnums it's a good bit that will have to do it for us for this week's episode I thank you all for listening. Please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Give us two stars. See, this whole business with the remembering the Twitter has started up all over again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got the runs pod. That's correct. At gmail.com. Got the runs pod on Twitter. Uh, next week, we will be doing the first of two episodes on the we're going from will eisner's right you look confused that's because of a tweet that i'm seeing as based on my likes which i'll talk about with you afterwards great we will be moving from will eisner's the spirit to richard stark's parker covering the hunter and the 2022 mark rylance film the outfit i did get really excited when i saw some of that stuff as like Mark Rylance as Parker, like I maybe <laughs> can get like quite into this, and then it was like uh, unrelated. Yeah, <laughs> but he's a it tailor. was like it. It was like it had a cool poster, which if I'd looked at more closely, I probably could have guessed was unrelated. <laughs> but it was like Mark Rylance is starring in the 2022 upcoming crime thriller The Outfit, and I was like, how have I not heard anything about this? <laughs> this could be really cool. I'm getting really excited. It's completely unrelated. That's really funny. Um, so look forward to that. I'm sure we can throw in a little bit of discussion about the movie as well. <laughs> Unrelated, of course. Uh, but that will do it for this week. Until next time, everyone. To, to be, be continued. continued. <laughs> this tweet based on my life. Yeah.